Hello, 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 and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. This show is brought to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation with the assistance of the UTS Business School and it's broadcast all the way across Australia over the Community Radio Network. It was one of the founding fathers and the United States' third president, Thomas Jefferson, who once said of the presidency, no man will ever bring out of that office the reputation which carries him into it. The honeymoon would be as short in that case as in any other, and its moments of ecstasy would be ransomed by years of torment and hatred. Tough sell indeed. It's a quotation that would probably remind President-elect Joseph R. Biden exactly how monumental the task before him is. Now begins the unenviable job of building a comprehensive response to the coronavirus, healing deep divisions on the streets of America, and rebuilding an economy brought to its knees. In today's episode, we're taking a wider scope and asking... What happens to the rest of us with the United States under new management? Joining me today is industry professor at the Institute for Sustainable Futures, former New South Wales Premier and Foreign Minister, Professor Bob Carr, and Professor Michelle Baddeley, Associate Dean of Research and Development at the Dean's Unit at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thank you both for joining us. I'd like to start the discussion with you, Professor Carr, on an interesting point you made in an opinion piece for the Sydney Morning Herald on October 7th of this year. So your quote was, the system, being the United States political system, was not intended as a democracy, but as a republic, and that this is an essential starting point for grasping the United States crisis. So to start off, do you think, obviously in your capacity as a private citizen, an academic and a former foreign minister, that this has been lost in translation when we in Australia attempt to analyse the American political system? Yeah, I think we've got to start by saying America is what it is. It's a republic. It was intended as a republic. It's proudly a republic. And it's a republic, to give it great credit, with constitutionally entrenched freedoms. That is the freedom of speech and assembly. You've got to add to that the freedom to bear guns, which is the Second Amendment. But not a democracy, because no other Western system, countries that call themselves democracies, has got a provision of the Constitution that says the popular vote is one thing, but we filter the popular vote through an electoral college, and that's going to result in the possibility that someone who doesn't get a majority of the popular vote gets awarded the presidency. A directly elected president isn't. Um, it's got the intrusion of this electoral college device. And the second reason America is not a democracy is that you have states able to practice voter suppression, systemic voter suppression, which means policies and practices designed to make it hard for poor people and minorities to get to a polling booth, to get on the electoral roll, to cast a vote, which is why you've got people in poor areas being forced to work to wait five hours, six hours to get in and vote, when people in wealthy Republican voting, largely white areas, I'm thinking of Texas and some southern states can get in and vote as you can in Australia for the most part after a wait of 15 minutes. You, you don't have democracies, democracies don't make it hard for their poor citizens to get in and vote. And democracies don't have an electoral college as a barrier between the popular choice and the eventual outcome. 
And do you think it's important for Australians to remember that fact that it is going to naturally be hard for us to grasp the understanding of an electoral college coming from the sort of parliamentary system that we've always existed in? Do you think it's it's a point that needs to be made clear before any analysis of the US system by an Australian or indeed British or Canadian academic for that matter? Yeah, I think people need to take account of it and need to take account of the gerrymander that resides at the heart of the Washington system of government. It's a gerrymander that means gerrymander that means the Senate probably the most powerful legislative body in the entire world, is designed so that something like 70% of the US population is represented by only 30% of the senators. And that reflects the fact that you've had population, disproportionate population growth in a number of states. But still, that leaves them with only two senators. And you've got states that have been depleted of population, and they still get those two senators. So um, that's that's a distortion. And that don't forget that that all powerful Senate selects, approves, appoints the judges of the Supreme Court. So the gerrymander flows through the whole system. A an unrepresentative Senate appoints an anti-majoritarian Supreme Court, and the House as well has got rigged boundaries. Uh, it's been estimated that uh, there's a, something like a 5% advantage to the Republican Party from the way uh, district boundaries are designed for the House of Representatives because in the American system, it's state legislatures that design the boundaries for federal electorates. The Republicans control the majority of state legislatures and they get to draw the federal electoral boundaries. So that's... These are other respects in which, leave aside the the, the uh, difficult term democratic, in which you can say an anti-majoritarian sentiment is built into the US system. A large portion of Donald Trump's presidency, indeed most of his presidency, was spent imposing tariffs and charges to imports on a host of nations that he believed had an unfair advantage over the United States. They're ripping us off was a very familiar tagline. During Joe Biden's campaign for the presidency, the slogan, Buy American, appeared again and again. So it does beg the question, despite the divide in ideology between Biden and Trump, is there a chance that a Biden presidency may stick to some pretty similar economic policies at least for the foreseeable future. 6.9% unemployment, according to the US Department of Labor. So the situation's looking dire. Is there a chance that maybe the economic revolution that a lot of people were anticipating Joe Biden would be in charge of maybe isn't going to be as radical as we thought? Yeah, I think that's correct analysis. He's He hasn't got a Senate majority. So that's the first barrier. And also the, the task of, of bringing greater equality through government intervention is always going to be opposed in the United States and opposed fiercely. A large number of the, the electorate people who might benefit from, a, from having a, a national health scheme or higher taxation on the rich, a redistribution of the tax burden, um, are resistant to these notions. They can be persuaded by the sort of rallying cry we heard in the just completed election this is Venezuelan-style socialism. We don't like socialism. 
And I think if if any society in the world cries out for a, a, a Marxist-style interpretation, something I'd resist by and large not being a Marxist and being opposed to it as an organising principle for society, it is the United States. Plutocratic describes America and Wall Street never seems to lose out. And the, the millionaire class, I suppose we now talk about the billionaire class, um, dominates when it comes to uh, to tax policy um, and economic programs. There's something in the American ethos that has even low-income people imagine that this agenda suits them. Um, it's why America, that ethos explains why America has been resistant to um, trade unionism, um, the notion of a social democratic or Labour Party, and, and sociologists and historians have speculated about this, but it's the American working man, to use that old-fashioned expression, imagining that by dint of hard work, he can rise and become a millionaire, a captain of industry. That notion of hope has been part of the... Uh, the, the American mythology, and I think it explains a lot about America to this day. But you had, you had people interviewed in, in diners and other locations um, by CNN or, or, uh, or Fox, and they're, they're talking about how they, they deeply admired Donald Trump because of his business success. And a moment's analysis shows you that he, he's, been a, he's been a fraudster, he's been a huckster. He's not a, he hasn't built a he hasn't got a successful business model at all. He's just one one step ahead of uh, of creditors. And I think it's interesting that you raise that point that so much of America is built on this idea. So, Michelle, a return to multilateralism is obviously something that a lot of the world is waiting for Joe Biden to do. And although it may or may not be quantifiable, what sort of effect would an incoming Biden presidency have on world politics in the sense of would other nations be more willing to come to the table knowing that the United States is very likely to be there again? I think it's interesting because some of his rhetoric in his um, speeches over the weekend were were very much about building bridges. Um, and so I think that that sort of rhetoric is, is really helpful internationally, whether it's helpful internally within America, there's still a large number of people who will be very disappointed by the election result. But I would imagine a, as a whole, the international community would feel that the future is brighter because Trump's international presence was, was very divisive on, on all sorts of uh, scales and with all sorts of different countries. And also the fact that Biden is, is a safe pair of hands. He's very, very experienced. He's been around for a long time. He knows how things work. And I think that sort of stability at this point in time, when so much is uncertain and unclear around COVID, that it will be something that might refresh the international community in maybe ultimately a minor way, depending how COVID un unfolds. But um, yeah, certainly. But the fact, and in a different point in time, maybe not so much, but just because there is so much uncertainty at the moment, the benefit, and the market showed it, the market showed it over the weekend as well. But um, I mean, there are some nuances there. So with the Senate, the Senate um, votes as well, the fact hearing some commentary over the weekend, the fact that the Republicans might still hold the Senate reassures the business community. So it's a curious juxtaposition of a, 
a Democrat victory alongside Republicans sort of holding the line means that maybe not so much can change in, in those terms. So it's reassured business as well. So it's a sort of complex. Do you find it funny in a way that we're talking about a refreshing presidency after four years of what was the most unusual presidency mm. we've probably yeah. ever seen in America's America's yeah. modern history. Do you think that that's almost ironic in a sense that four years ago all people could talk about was how Donald Trump was going to be the great disruptor because he wasn't a political operator? Is it mm. funny that a older white male who has been in the Senate for that long is now seen as a breath of fresh air? Oh, well, I think that Trump's presence has been, you know, interminable, hasn't it, really? And and I guess because his social media presence is so strong and so it strikes people as being so irrational. So, I mean, it's, it's a, a refreshing change from the last four years. My personal view is that... Trump will go down in history as a bit of a temporary joke. But if he won a, 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 a second term, that would have changed things substantially for a long period of time. And so I think ability of the international community to tolerate it for four years. I mean, you know, people's memories are short, aren't they? So, you know, the last four years has been Trump. He's become conventional in his weird sort of way. He's become the norm and now we're shifting back to a different norm and people have forgot probably forgotten what the norm was four years ago <laughs> uh, so, so it's how you define refreshing given that people's memories are short and in australia the ramifications of a biden presidency aren't fully known yet but one oh, thing that's an interesting one isn't it, it? it I mean, is... what does scott morrison really think i'd love to know <laughs> yeah well we all would and i think it's particularly interesting um, that our commitments to climate change are going to undoubtedly be a major talking point between Scott Morrison mm. and Joe Biden going into the future. And last time you were on the show, Professor Carr, uh, you described Australia as the United States deputy on the world stage. Do you think that the Morrison government will be willing to make further commitments at the behest of the United States, given obviously that relationship that they share on the world stage? Yeah, well, it's there is there is this view in Canberra from people who've come to dominate its thinking in recent years that Australia's one permissible international personality is as America's deputy. That the goal of Australian diplomacy and strategic thinking has got to be to render us always closer, closer and closer to the US. And if any any person in Washington asks a question about, oh, can we really count on the Australians? Our job is to get into a panic and uh, in the grip of excitement, struggle to prove through our energetic efforts that we really are as uncritically loyal as ever. So the goal of Australia is to be as close as possible to the United States. Um, that is the, the, what seems to be the Canberra orthodoxy. The challenge for people who hold that view is that this United States, under this new president, is saying climate change is an existential threat. It's the explanation for these huge fires in California. Indeed, they are climate fires. It's the explanation for the storms that are lashing the Gulf Coast. Um, and we're going to get all coal and gas out of the US power grid by 2035. We're going to be zero net emissions by 2050. 
Well, these are propositions that conservatives in Australia don't like. Uh, don't forget that when the ANZ said we, we're not going to be funding thermal coal um, as part of its, its plan for the future, um, two, two Australian government ministers said we, we, we're calling on people to boycott ANZ. Well, now they've, got a, now they've got a US government as Australia's ally that is saying exactly what ANZ in its cautionary approach said, namely the, the era of, of electricity generated, generated by burning coal is over. And I just wonder whether those federal government ministers who threatened ANZ with boycott um, for saying we can't load up our, our loans book with, uh, with coal mines that are going to be stranded assets are going to say the same of the United States government itself, because under Biden, Washington is saying net zero emissions and we're out of coal and we're out of gas. It may be pure speculation, but do you think that there's a more likely chance that Australia will, as you say, scramble to show the United States that we're still their loyal deputy? Or will Australia make the argument that not unlike the election and calls for Scott Morrison to call Donald Trump and, and remind him of, of the virtues of democracy, that sovereign nations do ultimately have a right to choose their own destiny. Do you think that it could be one of those two responses? I think they'll try to muddy the water. Um, I think they'll try to say, well, we, we'd like to get there to net zero emissions. Um, certainly we're going to get there um, sometime or other, but we're just reluctant to make that our goal. But Japan's made it its goal. South Korea, China has said net zero emissions by 2060. Um, Canada, the European Union, uh, the United Kingdom, and they've urged Australia to make a comparable commitment. And they're actually talking about tariffs, carbon tariffs to disadvantaged countries that haven't made the commitment. So Australia looks, as I argued in a, an opinion piece in the in the Herald on, on Sunday, Australia looks like it's allied with Saudi Arabia and uh, President Bolsonaro's Brazil. Uh, one out, real reactionaries, real laggards on climate and at odds with our great and powerful ally when all our instincts are, are not to be at odds with anything to do with America. So it is a, it is, it is a bit of dilemma, a dilemma. I think, I think um, certainly... Uh, at the start, um, Prime Minister Morrison will try to uh, try to fudge things and avoid having to shift policy in response to uh, pre pressure from Washington. But there will be pressure from Washington because Biden takes this very, very seriously. Politics as well, I imagine, but rent-seeking of certain groups within the Australian economy uh, would be unwilling to shift towards zero carbon. Mm, and how long could we conceivably survive before we would have to make a decision either way. I can imagine President Biden probably wouldn't go straight for the jugular in the first few months of his presidency. I'm sure he'd probably want to ingratiate himself to other world leaders. How long do you think it'll be before the United States ultimately puts its foot down and says it's either you side with us or you do, as you've mentioned, Professor Carr, side with Brazil and, and Saudi Arabia, which seems like a, 
ultimately a pretty awkward table to get stuck at, particularly for a country like Australia with the relations that we do have with the United States and the UK. There, there won't be a public rupture. Um, Americans are too polite, too courteous, and this president embodies courtesy as much as anyone. Uh, but it will be very noticeable to him and the people around him that Australia is a laggard on climate, and that doesn't do our reputation any good. Um, but still, we prove our value as an ally in other ways, and I guess Morrison will be, and his ministers will be working overtime on those other fronts to compensate for the the rift the rift between us and the uh, and the Americans on on climate. But in the end, what's happening here is happening in the private sector. It is the banks and the insurance companies saying, no, no, look, we can't. We can't pick up uh, a coal-fired power station or a gas-fired power station. Um, we're certainly not investing in thermal coal. We can't put money into the infrastructure that services a, a, a coal mine. Equity funds, pension funds, superannuation funds, no, they're, they're not going to do it because they're going to end up with a stranded asset. As the climate gets worse in response to record temperatures and our, our higher summer temperatures are going up almost every year, it seems, and the bushfires are getting more savage. Um, it's clear as anything to the private sector that there's going to be international pressure for us to reduce our emissions so we can keep world temperatures to, to no more than a um, one degree, between one and two degrees warming between now and 2050. So if you put your money into the offending industries, then it's money that's going to be lost. You're building an asset that has got to be servicing you for the next 20 or 30 years, power station or a big open cut mine. Uh, why would you do that if you feel the world closing in and targeting carbon because it's got to, to keep the temperatures down from rendering the, the planet uninhabitable? And Michelle, do you think that there's a way of quantifying a nation's reputation on the world stage? Yeah, the reputational effects could be could be quite severe. I, I think it, 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 so many complex things feed into um, a country's reputation, and generally Australia has a wonderful reputation internationally. You, you know, it doesn't mess with other countries the way that people could argue the states messes with other countries. How, how are markets responding would be the most obvious. But apart from that, quantifying it is likely to be complex. And Professor Carr, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think I think... Foreign policy is all about shaping an international character, an international personality. Our international personality, as we've seen in Asia, as being um, the closest nation in the region to the US. Now, you could argue that that's no bad thing, and it's it's we, we make that commitment because of underlying security concerns, and it's one of our national anxieties, and we feel we... We, we've got no alternative but to link ourselves with uh, the dominant regional power or the dominant naval power. That's, that's placing an awful lot of faith in, uh, the, in the United States and the quality of its leadership. But still, it's a, an arguable proposition. I think most Australians, however, would like us to have some other strings to the bow. Why can't, why can't we, while we're a, a close ally of the U.S., reflecting security concerns, also be capable of bringing forward some good, constructive, middle-power diplomacy. 
we can think for ourselves. Why can't be looking, we, we be looking for areas where we can actually add value or areas where we, we can be advising both China and the US on managing their relationship? There'd be so much more to us if we were to have a more confident view of the role we can play in the world. Well, that's about it for today's show. Thank you to our guests, Professor Bob Carr and Professor Michelle Baddeley. Make sure to catch the show online wherever you get your podcasts and we'll leave you with another presidential quote. This one by Richard Nixon. The presidency has many problems, but boredom is the least of them. I've been your host, Max Tillman. I'll see you again next week.